from the Tao Te Ching, number 10, 600 years before Christ. Can you coax your mind from its wandering to keep to the original oneness? Can you let your body become as supple as a newborn child's? Can you cleanse your inner vision until you see nothing but the light? Can you love people and lead them without imposing your will? Can you deal with the most vital matters by letting events take their course? Can you step back from your own mind and thus understand all things? Giving birth and nourishing, having without possessing, acting with no expectations, leading and not trying to control. This is the supreme virtue. Thank you, Didi. That's great. So, as I said just earlier, this is the second in our series talking about the perfection of all things. Because it's spiritually, you know, it's all, all supposed to all work together. Everything's supposed to be okay and everything works. But last week, we looked a bit about the dichotomy between that supposed perfection and the way our lives tend to be so chaotic. We don't really experience that nature of perfection in our own lives? How is there a part of us that in some ways can see that perfection in all things, but then we look out and we feel the ravages that go on in the world around us? And, you know, that question I posed last week, is there really something that cares for us? Is there a God that, and obviously I'm in a chapel, I'm in the business of saying there is a God that cares for us, but it's worth actually thinking about it. You know, is there something that we can experience? Or is it like Gloucester said in King Lear, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. I mean, they're a bleak outlook, but you know, when you look out into the world, you've got both those things going on. There is undoubtedly perfection in life. You only have to look around you, the skies and these heavens, you know, everything is working. But that perfection doesn't really seem often to enter into the way that we think and feel about things. I also mentioned last week that perspective was something that we used to square that circle. We listen to stories uh, from the past, myths, legends from the Bible, really to try and bridge that gap between the supposed perfection and the difficulties that we face. We tell ourselves stories to why that is. Ideas about consciousness and spirituality as well can just be stories that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel a bit better. Which is why, to really get to the essence of it all, I said last week, we've got to go, as it said in that reading, beyond our minds. We have to really say... I'm not going to believe any of those stories that my mind is telling me. I'm going to realize that I will never know why that dichotomy exists. I can only stand in the midst of that dichotomy and try and understand it from that place. So today we're, what I'm going to answer is we're faced with two questions. How do I stand in the midst of all this and reconcile it? 
And is there really a caring nature out there that I can relate to? So the difference, I think, between that so-called perfection that's out there and the slings of arrows of of outrageous fortune that many have experienced come into sharp focus when we choose to discipline our minds. And I'm really suggesting that the way through this, you know, this is sort of, you know, we're quite big on meditation here. And this is, you know, the idea that you go beyond your thinking into some other place is what I'm suggesting is the place where we do actually start to experience something of that perfection. We have to take the stance. There was a 13th century monk called Meister Eckhart, and he suggested that the only true stance to take for satisfaction is a stance where you want for nothing. You realize that in life, at that particular moment, if you're able to get into that moment of prayer or quiet, you want for nothing. And therefore, there's nothing to do. And if you can actually admit to yourself that you really don't know what's going on, which as a, as a pastor it's always difficult to do, but if you can admit to yourself you don't know what's going on, then you can enter into what he calls a pure state. It is essentially... Entering into a state of detachment. A state of detachment. It's that place where there is no judgment of what we're feeling or experiencing. Katie Beckley sent me um, those wonderful words by Rumi during the week. Um, And Rumi says, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. When you lie down in that grass of not beyond wrongdoing and rightdoing, the world is too full to talk about. In order to arrive at that point where we begin to see the perfection of the world in our personal lives, in order to get to that point, we have to arrive at a point of non-judgmentalism. We have to realize that although we feel all the piercings of life that shoots us pain and difficulty, that pain only comes when we have an expectation of what we should expect of life. That judgment of what we should have in our lives is made by our minds. And we come from that judgment when we feel pain. I shouldn't be feeling this. This shouldn't be going on. We don't want to be ill. We want to be healthy. We don't want our loved ones to die. We want them to live. We don't want to mess up. We want to do well. All those kind of thoughts are as a result of thinking about how life has been in the past and thinking how we'd like it to be in the future. The pain comes when the future doesn't live up to our expectations, when we mess up. It's not what we'd like to have happen, you know, when something bad happens. We feel the pain of the good that we wanted to have happen. And that brings us that difficulty and pain. But what I'm suggesting is that by disciplining our thoughts, which is what meditation is all about, we center ourselves in our hearts where there is no judgment because it is beyond the mind. 
we center ourselves in a place, if you could imagine that's possible, a place that is beyond the mind, where there is no judgment. Because when we're in our hearts, in our breath, in our loving nature of perfection that actually exists in that no mind, we do realize at that point that we want for nothing. We realize that we want for nothing, that our aliveness is all that we ask for. The world is too full to talk about because our aliveness is all that that we have. And therefore, trying to think about the past and the future is redundant because we do have the aliveness of the moment. And so there is nothing to do about it. All you can do is rest in that. You know, wanting for nothing and therefore willing nothing. And then the final stage is not trying to work it out. And we always want to work it out. Not trying to control it by working our thoughts around it. Not even thinking about what it means to want for nothing or will nothing or know nothing. We have to be willing to not know. Wanting for nothing, willing nothing, knowing nothing. And by entering into that place, we enter into the perfection that's within us. By entering into that place, we enter into a perfection that's within us. It's there that we become, it's there in that place of perfection that we become the pattern of life. We simply exist in the breath of the Spirit. It may sound a bit highfalutin, but it's possible to get to that point beyond mind in the breath of the Spirit. It's called, in Hebrew, it's called ruach, the breath, and the Spirit and the breath together. It's by being in that ruach that we're able to experience the exquisite perfection and pattern of life. And that involves detaching ourselves from the onslaughts of the mind. As it said in that reading that D.D. read, can you coax your mind from wandering and keep to the original oneness? Can you coax your mind from wandering and keep to the original oneness? Can you step back from your own mind and understand all things. When you step back from your mind, you're really actually in the midst of all things, rather than just being in the midst of your thoughts. You see the difference? When, you're, when you can step back from your mind, you're in the midst of all things, truly, rather than just being in the midst of your thoughts. And thus, understanding can come. And remember that word understanding means standing in the midst of things. And it's there in that moment that clarity emerges. Actually, it's here that peace emerges. The peace that passes all understanding. There's that blessing at the end of a service. May the peace that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. And arriving at that point of detachment, detachment from the mind, it heralds the arrival of peace. And that peace is actually the connection with the divine. It's where your soul is. That's where your soul is. Not in your thoughts, in that peace, in the silence. It is the soul at rest because it's found what it's actually looking for, absolute reality. The mind is at rest because it's found what it's looking for. As Bede Griffiths says, the goal of each religion is the same. The goal of each religion is the same. It is the absolute transcendent state. It is the one reality, the eternal truth, that cannot be expressed and cannot be conceived. 
This is the goal not only of the one religion, but of all human existence. Whether they like it or men, when men and women are continually attracted by that transcendent truth. You've got to be within the thoughts, you see. The intellect, in and beyond every formulation by which it seeks to express thought, is in search of the absolute. The intellect is made for that being itself, for truth, for reality, and it cannot rest satisfied in any partial truth, in any construction of the human mind. It is always being carried beyond itself to ultimate truth. And therefore, when you find peace, you actually find ultimate truth. It is the heart of being. It is the divine. The peace, in my view, and this is another message, the peace is the proof that God exists. Peace at the center of one's heart is the proof that God exists. Don't take my word for it. Try it. Try arriving at that point beyond the mind in meditation. Millions of books about it. Come on, Developing Consciousness. Come talk to me. You know, how you get to it. And it's here that the pattern of the universe becomes clear. Where we experience that perfection that somewhere in us we always knew was there. It's within us. It's when we come into contact with that ruash, that breath and spirit together. In fact, another meaning for ruash is divine voice. And it's the still, small voice that Elijah heard when he went to the mouth of the cave that's available to us all. So we connect to that perfection within ourselves. And the experience of that perfection is peace. It is the essence of the meaning of the story of Jesus asleep in the boat. She's speaking the wisdom. I think I'll have her up here. It's the essence of the story of Jesus stilling the storm. The disciples get frightened, a stall comes up, and they say, you know, teacher, you know, don't you care for us? Aren't we going to drown? We think that, don't we? Don't, aren't you going to drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, be still, be quiet. And the wind died down and there was complete calm. Why are you so afraid, he says, do you still have no faith? It is that state of peace in which we can totally be at ease which is in my body. That peace is in our bodies, in our hearts, and it's when our soul relaxes. She's casting a spell. It is the state in which I know no fear. This is interesting, this. The state where I know no fear. It is the state of forgiveness. It is the state where love flows freely. It is a state of inner clarity in which I perceive the truth. It is the state in which I'm able to tell the truth without fear of judgment or rejection. It is the state in which my ego mind is quiet. It is that state in which I know the essence of my consciousness to be the same as the essence of the consciousness of all things. And it is where we experience the perfection of all things. So we can get to that state of consciousness, that, 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 that inner state, but we still have the problem of, does anyone care? Is there a God that we can really say cares for us, participates in our lives, that will look after us? Well, I'm afraid to say that really begs the question, what do we mean by God? 
And I know we just take it for granted what we know, but we have such cultural baggage about that. We have ideas as to what we think we mean when we talk about God. And if we're honest, most of those ideas about God are drawn from our cultural past. The idea of a personal God that's involved with us, or the idea of a greater self that will guide us and steer us. And the real truth is, the real truth is that we cannot know what we mean by God. As it says in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I mean, you know, I know it sounds ridiculous, me up there being a minister, but I'm really saying we can't know who God is or what God is. And to think we do is to take a partial view. In the past, you know, I've said that trying to understand God is like a fish trying to understand what a cash register is. And can you think of all the various thought processes you have to go through for for a fish to get to what a cash register is? I mean, it's so beyond it. It's never going to do that. And it's the same with God. Or an ant trying to understand a human from the soul that's above it of the shoe that's coming down in it. You can never understand it. It's a very high state to realize that we cannot know the nature of our creator and that we never will. So trying to ask the question about whether God cares for us or not is fraught with danger. Who's caring? What do we mean by care? What is the perspective on care? You know, the planet cares for itself continually adapting to circumstances that it finds itself in, it writes itself. It creates ice ages, shifting tectonic plates and the movements of the seas in relationship to all that. But does the planet care for humans? Probably not. If, we're serious, you know, if we seriously threaten the planet, it will adjust and will deal with us as a problem. And therefore... It will deal with us in the same way we'll become like dinosaurs. You know, there is not that care, but we are part of a perfect happening. That first reading uh, that Scott read, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is what becoming... You know, Bridget doesn't know. You know she, doesn't, she doesn't think about what God is. And we have to become like that. Our attitude has to be that of the innocence of children who really don't think about whether or not they're cared or looked after. But they live in a dependent position of care. They really do live in the spirit of, but God so clothes the, fields of the, the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, will he not clothe me as well? I mean, Bridget doesn't think, you know, are Scott you know, and, and Kelly going to look after me? She just lives in a dependent state. And and that has to be in our our attitude. That's what Jesus is saying in that bit about, you know, clothes and things like that. We have to live in a dependent state. We have to know and be dependent. That that person I was talking about, Meister Eckhart, has a very controversial view about this. He says, in fact, that he values detachment. He values detachment from all things above love. He says, in his view, detachment from the, from the outcomes of things, is, is he values that above love. Because he says, love constrains me to love God. I'm constrained to love God. But detachment compels God to love me. 
detachment compels God to love me. He argues that God is far more able to adapt to us and can far more easily unite with us than we can unite with God. So we should just give up trying. But still come to chapel. Don't don't give up to that extent. We should give that up and be completely dependent upon God and completely receptive of God. And there is no planning or understanding required. So we don't understand who or what God is. However, we can open ourselves to be totally receptive to the perfection and order that we experience. And by being detached from our ideas as to how things ought to be, we allow ourselves to become part of that perfection and so loved by it, whatever it is. But we're still left, and I'm going to bang on because, you know, this is an important thing. We're still left with the question of the unfairness of it all. Can we really be expected to have that attitude as we're forced into a gas chamber or our child is taken from us or we suffer terribly at the effects of life? And, of course, the answer to that question is uncomfortable. And it is that our well-being is not necessarily the most important thing on the planet. It's difficult to get that, but our well-being is not necessarily the priority of priorities. And I say that because that, that tends to be the way that we think about it. We think about ourselves to be the center of everything and therefore the priority. We see it when we pray. You know, we list things that we want God to pay attention to, you know, mostly around our concerns that, that you know, little Jimmy's leg will get better, that Aunt Kathy will be you know, okay, that Dad's temper will be better, and yes, can the Rockies please win the World Series? You know, we pray to God these things. But the truth is that in the scheme of things, we may not necessarily be the priority. And that's hard because it seems like, you know, we should be able to rely on God. You know, and actually it's not reliable in that sense. But we have to tell the truth about it because we know to some extent in the wholeness of all creation Nature is still red in tooth and claw. And we experience it. And we have to tell the truth about it. When a volcano needs to explode, it doesn't work out who will be killed and who won't be killed. It just explodes. And the forces of evolution that have been building up over the centuries need to vent. And if we're in the way, there's nothing much that can be done. But what we can rely on is a connection to love and that connection to be perfect. And to some extent, those forces of a volcano are the same as the, the human forces of social life. You know, things build up, the tectonic plates in society build up, and they just explode. And, you know, sometimes we're in the way. It may not keep us alive, that, that perfection, but it allows us to die with that peace and love which is within us and that we connect to it. And that's true day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second. You know, most of the time in our lives, that's not a priority. We just go on living, and then the moment we most need, you know, the moment we most want to be saved, you know, we call upon God to help us. You know, our salvation, our place of safety is always there with us. However, we don't invite it to be with us all the time. We don't invite God to come and live with us. Most of us just let him in a bit. You know, but we retain control over our lives. We invite God to be our lodger rather than participating as a member of the family. We say, yes, I know you're real. 
come in and live in this small room at the top of my house, my upstairs attic, and I'll come and visit you in the mornings, maybe once a week, unless I've got family commitments or it's spring break when I might not be able to come. In the meantime, I am on the last page, by the way. So, In the meantime, you're not to come into the other rooms. Rest assured, I can deal with it. I'll be thinking of you. I may even ask for your help when I'm in trouble. In these instances, I will call you up on the intercon, and then you can do your best to help me. If it's a dire emergency, I may even invite you to come down there straight away and be with me and sort it all out. But I generally can handle things. That's very different from sharing your life with that perfect peace. Come in and live with me. Have the biggest room. Would you like to redecorate? Would you like to be there during our meals? How can I share and change my house to be with you? That is genuinely living with that peace. And that's what, it, you know, what we're offered in our lives. That's what we're offered. Not that we'll be kept from ill, but we can live in fellowship with that perfection. That's, that's what we're offered, that we can live in fellowship with that perfection. I feel it should be pleased to hear but next week I'm going to look at the nature of evil, because I think you have to look at what, what is that and how that fits in with all of this um, and, and how that's a part of it. So let's just take a moment just to pray. We do pray for our perception of an imperfect world. We just look at the international situations that are going on, the supposed madness that seems to be happening, and we do pray for that perfect peace to be in our leaders' hearts and minds. We pray for all those in difficulty who don't experience that perfection. We ask you to look after them and to give them a sense of being able to get beyond their minds into that place of perfect peace. We particularly pray today for those in our community that we care for. We pray for Bridget and Bridget's family, this wonderful time of their baptism. Pray for Tricia Nichols, Patricia Hill, Will Welsh, Barbara Orcutt, Sandy St. John, Bill Archer, Nathan Morse, Sophie Layton, Casey McClanahan, Bo Torfer, Jamshid Mahogodan, Don Hull, and Anne Bayard, who had a fall from her bike and is on the men but broke her hip. Lord, we pray your blessing on all these people. May their their minds and bodies receive your healing power in Jesus' name. Amen.